This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Back in 2015, America was shocked when Olympic hero Bruce Jenner appeared on the cover of Vanity Fair in a corset and full makeup and over a headline that read, Call Me Caitlin." And ever since then, most people have obliged and accepted, largely without question, the ensuing transgender madness that now characterizes modern American life in the form of new developments like confused men playing female sports or going into women's bathrooms. But as absurd as so many of the transgender movement ideas are, perhaps the worst repercussion of its ideology has taken shape as even young boys and girls are seeking and receiving, in many cases, sex transition hormone therapies or surgeries. And some parents who have objected to this insanity have found themselves even losing custody of their own children. What is going on in our society? How did we get to this point? My next guest notes that there is a terrible history behind it all, and we're going to hear more about it now from Dr. Quentin Van Meter. Dr. Van Meter is the president of the American College of Pediatricians, an organization that promotes health care for children based on sound scientific principles. He finished his fellowship in pediatric endocrinology at Johns Hopkins Hospital and is now a pediatric endocrinologist in Atlanta, serving as an adjunct associate professor of pediatrics at both the Emory University School of Medicine and the Morehouse College of Medicine. He speaks around the world on the subject of treatment of transgender children and has served as an expert witness in legal battles in the U.S. and Canada documenting the irreparable harm caused by affirmation therapies. Dr. Van Meter, it's just really an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much for being here. I'm very glad to be able to speak with you. Thank you for asking. Thank you. You have said that people frequently ask you how we got here. I'm sure you're a little bit tired of that question, but I know you have spoken previously about the three musketeers, as you've called them, of the sexual revolution, one of which was a man you knew at Johns Hopkins, Dr. John Money. And I'm wondering if you could tell people a little bit about how these three musketeers paved the way for all of this transgender madness. Well, it's interesting. I've, I've actually been criticized for calling them musketeers because the musketeers were sort of very valiant people. And, <laughs> yeah, so, That's okay. Uh, but they were they were a triple threat, I guess we could we could say it that way. Is that they were the leaders of what has sort of, re- in retrospect, been called the sexual revolution, where previously uh, normal standards of behavior and sexual human sexual behavior have been quote normalized by uh, you know these individuals working diligently to uh, create a sense that um, sexual behaviors of all kinds are in the spectrum of normal and not associated with any kind of mental health issues whatsoever. And so John Money was a clinical psychologist who trained at Harvard. Um, his, his colleague, Harry Benjamin, was actually a family practitioner, had no mental health training. And the favorite, uh, favorite, famous Alfred Kinsey was actually an entomologist, who, an entomologist, a, a studier of bugs, if you will, who, who uh, dabbled in the behaviors of the mud wasp. Uh, Kinsey uh, started the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University back in the late 40s, and he was thrown into that position uh, somewhat surreptitiously by being asked to 
training or to give a course on marriage and a family to um, college students at Indiana. And that branched off into his sort of curiosity about, you know, what he could get the students to admit to do and uh, to run a questionnaire that he had 350 questions that he he posed to them and answered them uh, or took their answers and and collected them and created his two books on the sexual behavior of the human male and the human female, which became sort of bestsellers and uh, sort of harbingers of things to come with with normalizing what had previously been thought of as sort of aberrant sexual behavior. So he was an entomologist who studied bugs. Benjamin was a family practitioner without mental health training, and John Money was a clinical psychologist without medical training. And the three of these people put together their ideas. Money uh, came to Hopkins primarily because uh, there was this long history at Hopkins of a very, very um, incredible unfolding of the physiology of human hormones and how the uh, human fetus uh, changes in utero uh, from being sort of a neutral uh, type of a a body to either male or female uh, appearance at birth. And all of these things happen with the effects of hormones in the uterine environment as the fetus develops. Hopkins outlined these things uh, with the help of of their faculty in clinical studies and realized that there were very rare occasions where Mother Nature went awry, and when the baby was born, it was not easy to tell whether or not the baby was actually a male or a female, because the uh, genital structures, the external genital structures, were somewhat ambiguous or under underdone or overdone, as, as the case would be. So Money thought he he would use his expertise in human sexuality, uh, as he saw it, and tried to work out the sexual identity of these individuals who were then referred to as intersex, so we now call them disorders of sexual differentiation. And he was fascinated by what he thought he could do by social engineering in, their, in the environment of these children, taking biologic males and actually trying to, to change them into social females and to be reared as such, and vice versa with, uh, with males and, and females in, in the opposite case. So he had theories in his head that he thought, you know, that, that gender was this concept that was inside the head, uh, biology was the concept that the body was, and that sometimes they weren't going to match, but that it didn't seem to matter. You could play with them and come out okay on the other end. Simultaneously, while he was doing that, he had a real interest in adult males who decided they wanted to become females uh, and thought they were born in the wrong body. They were then called transsexuals, not transgenders. Right. And he treated them uh, medically uh, with the help of, of the endocrine colleagues uh, with hormones and then had surgery procedures uh, performed on them uh, by the gynecologic surgeons and urologic surgeons at Johns Hopkins to transform them, quote, unquote, from male to female and vice versa. Um, these cases were then studied longitudinally and found to show that none of the emotional trauma and morbidity and suffering was made any better by doing this, this uh, sort of change, if you will, sex change, as it was then called. And his program was shut down. Uh, and at, at the same time, the children that he recommended treatments for uh, to, to raise them in, in sexes, uh, genders other than their biologic sex, completely fell apart, and those cases, uh, one of them, and very notoriously, both the the individuals involved committed suicide in their early 20s. Mm. 
so it was a, it was a sad case of human experimentation before the age when there were such things as committees to protect human subjects and before there were institutional review boards that were independent that, that would oversee clinical research studies money just experimented socially on children and the outcomes were terrible and i was a fellow at johns hopkins at the time when these things were unfolding and i was somewhat aghast because i learned personally that john money was a very perverted individual i mean wow. I, you know it's not nice to call names but he he did things to children and recommended things for children that were so absolutely uh, breaking upon pedophilia at the time and so this this left all of us who knew him with a poor taste in our mouth and we were very glad to see that program come to an end oh my goodness so john money if i'm remembering correctly was somebody that you said was the man who invented gender so when we talk about sex versus gender that was money then who came up with that idea Yes, he took the word that had been essentially assigned to linguistic terms to for nouns and uh, pronouns in various uh, romance languages and Germanic languages, and he decided that that would that would be the internal uh, a sexual identity, if you will, mental sexual identity of an individual would be their gender, which would would not necessarily line up with their biologic sex. So he coined that term and decided that that was a valid entity that had basis somewhere. It's never been proven to have basis. It cannot be measured uh, in a a blind fashion. You can't do a test on a human being and say, what is your gender? You certainly can do tests on human beings without their knowing what you're doing and find out what their biologic sex is. But you cannot do that. If you don't have a conversation with a patient, you would have no idea what their gender would be based on any individual test that you could do scientifically. So wow. it's, a, it's a term that's in the mind. It's a concept that's a social concept. It has no biologic basis whatsoever. But it got legs in the medical community from there on out, right? Well, it, it stayed quiet for, oh, gosh, from the late 1980s all the way up until the, the probably around the year 2000 or so when the European folks who were uh, dealing, dealing with adult patients primarily doing hormonal treatments and surgical manipulations on uh, adults that thought they were born into the wrong body, they treated those individuals, but they began uh, looking after the children who started showing up in earlier ages claiming that they were born in the wrong body. Well, hang on just a moment. I hate to break it here, but we do need to pause for a very quick break. Dr. Quentin Van Meter is with us. We're talking about the growing deception of the transgender movement. We'll be right back on Janet Mefford today. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. The global COVID-19 virus is having a terrible impact on the most vulnerable among us, the unborn. Sheltering in orders across the country are spiking the number of unplanned pregnancies, and the Preborn call center is inundated with girls calling us. Contrary to government mandates to stop elective surgeries, Planned Parenthood remains open, consuming scarce medical supplies, all the while aborting babies. Our clinics are offering free, Christ-centered alternatives to these women in this time of crisis. But our clinics need your help, now more than ever. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and a direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Will you join Preborn in this time of need? Your gift of $28 will provide one free ultrasound. $140 will provide five free ultrasounds. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-BABY. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. From Kingdom Story Company comes I Still Believe. 
Available now for home viewing on demand. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe reminds us that amidst life storms, true hope can be found in Christ. You chose willingly to walk into the fire with her. That's what love is. I Still Believe. Starring KJ Apa, Rick Robertson, Shania Twain, and Gary Sinise. More information is available at IStillBelieveMovie.com. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. It's so good to have you with us and great to have with us Dr. Quentin Van Meter, president of the American College of Pediatricians. And he is just, uh, wow, unleashing for us the history of this transgender movement that is driving our society mad at the moment. There is a history here. It's quite shocking. And we've been talking about some of the important men behind this sexual revolution that eventually has led us to where we are now. And you were saying, Dr. Van Meter, before we went to the break about Dr. John Money, whom you knew at Johns Hopkins the man who invented gender. Now, things went on throughout history, and eventually we got Bruce Jenner on the cover of Vanity Fair. And I'm wondering how it is that you think the transgender movement or the ideology has exploded the way that it has, because it's in so many ways an obvious thing to even the most basic human being that something is wrong in the mind here. The problem is not the body. So what, what do you think is going on here? Well, it's, it's almost a, a cult-like phenomenon where the Internet and, and access to information that's unbridled and unfiltered for young children uh, is presented to them as, as an option. You have children particularly who are in uh, emotionally uh, upheaval states from their family circumstances, from circumstances beyond their control, divorce, incarceration, uh, drug addiction, alcoholism, sexual abuse. The kids have this in their environment, and, and in, in the past, um, this was not an outlet for them to kind of grab onto a shiny object that said, this is the answer, this is why you feel the way you do. So, it, it, you know, adolescence is a rough time. It's not a disease state. Puberty is not a disease process. It's a physiologic change from being an infertile, um, immature uh, uh, young child to becoming a fertile, reproductive male or female. And so puberty is that time frame we go through, and all of us who have been through it, you know, we're agonized at various and sundry times about the way things changed, our voices, our physical appearance, or the lack of change that wasn't fast enough, or too much change, too much acne, uh, body parts that, that didn't seem to be correct or were too big or too small. Uh, and we, you know, go through that process, and in that is, is the social uh, angst that happens, and especially in the day of, age of the Internet, Kids are constantly seeking, you know, ways to become better or ways to feel better about themselves and feel less miserable. And this concept of transgender came out from from literally almost nowhere, being a, a suddenly an answer to everybody's prayers. If you're bullied at school, if you're if you're unhappy with who you are, or you had a bad relationship with somebody 
perhaps it's because you've been born into the wrong body. And this is a quick answer. You, you basically get to pause puberty. You get to change your body to, to answer, be someplace you're more comfortable with. And the problem is that you can't do that. You cannot change your sex. It's biologically impossible. You can hurt yourself with hormones. You can stop puberty temporarily. You can have organs that are perfectly functional cut off and removed and damaged and taken away, but you can't put all that back together again. And so this, this sort of panacea answer has, has taken on uh, sort of like a freight train from going from very essentially non-existent in children uh, in the 1990s to suddenly in the mid-2000s. Uh, it, it basically is uh, one out of three children, evidently, uh, by one survey, are considering the fact that they're in the wrong body. And that is, mm. that is just a social contagion factor that is, is absolutely horrifying because going along with all of this ends up creating disease states and increased risk of death uh, and certainly sterility as a result of following through with all these processes in order. Goodness. But and then the statistics, I know that the American College of Pediatricians has pointed this out before, the statistics on kids who are really mulling over the issue of their sex when they're in puberty the vast majority of them outgrow it. So why in the world would you have all of these physicians or mental health professionals recommending these affirmation surgeries or hormone tre- hormone treatments for kids, knowing that the statistics are so high for their likelihood of outgrowing all of these feelings? Well, it's it, things have been hijacked, okay? So a very aggressive uh, trans activist group has infiltrated the major the professional societies and put forward these these concepts of this is the way it should be done and if you are against that you are transphobic or homophobic or just a terrible person who is a hater and people are afraid of that i mean that is such a such a powerful tool on one hand you hold over their heads the fact that they are going to be labeled as bigoted haters if they don't go along with this right on the other hand you threaten the idea that if you don't go along with this these children will kill themselves and all of that data on suicide has been misconstrued and manufactured and amplified. The truth is these kids are all troubled. They are all miserable. They have high rates of depression and anxiety. And they all need the attention of mental health professionals, but they do not need to be affirmed. That is just adding gasoline to a fire, and you wonder why it explodes at the end of their life or in the middle of it, because you have been doing all the wrong things with affirmation. So it's fear. It's fear-mongering. Uh, it's fear of telling parents that their kids will die if they don't do this, telling pediatricians the same thing, telling endocrinologists the same thing, when none of it is actually true. There is no benefit to affirmation. There are these suicide risks, but they're equal in the the affirmed and the unaffirmed uh, kids unless you basically take care of them with really aggressive, ongoing psychotherapy. That's what they need. They do not need uh, social affirmation, medical transformation, and surgical transformation. They need mental health professionals who are going to work them through all of the kinks and the the angles that have brought them to this decision to try to get this to be the answer. Right. Well, and what are the numbers, about 80%, 90% of the children who outgrow it? What are the actual statistics on that? Well, it varies depending on the study, but 11 of 11 studies across the globe 
show that anywhere from 65% to 98% of boys will go back to identifying with their biologic sex, and that somewhere between 60 and 85% of girls will do if you let them proceed through spontaneous, uninterrupted puberty and you give them the counseling that they deserve. That is amazing. And, yeah, so there is the cure. They're right there. I mean, we, you know, cure rates of that degree are, are just lauded uh, and applauded in every other circumstance. They are dismissed by the trans activists as if they didn't exist in the first place. And those studies are, quote, old and, and need to be redone. There are no studies that, that going forward that prove that affirmation is beneficial uh, compared to um, being, you know, intense counseling. That, Not one single ongoing study, controlled study, exists on the planet today. That is really important. And I think of when you talked about Johns Hopkins, Dr. Paul McHugh, who people will know, the former chief of psychiatry there, helped to end the transgender surgeries. What are your thoughts about how Dr. McHugh was skewered in the media and by all of these activists? Aren't doctors the ones who are qualified to make these decisions the best, better than anybody else? Yes, McHugh is an internationally renowned psychiatrist who is, who is basically the, the, the expert on human sexuality. Um, and he was indeed skewered for writing this beautiful, extensive, essentially book chapter, which he wanted to do to explain to the world about the undercurrent morbidity in all of these cases and the folly of believing that you can change someone from a male to a female or vice versa. Uh, that it's, it is impossible, that it is a, it is a sad costume uh, that, that essentially is very hard to take off at the end and does no, no real long-term good. And he is uh, he's a, an incredibly uh, ethical human being, uh, kindest man I, I've met in terms of sitting down and having a chance to talk with him about what, he's concerned, what his concerns are. And he was, he was just you know, laid in bare with, with criticism uh, after he published his really extensive, beautifully referenced, balanced uh, uh, presentation on the, on the subject. Um, and the, the, the criticism came within four or five days of the publication of this, of this piece that he wrote. I will tell you that that piece cannot be digested in five or six days. And, and it, it, it was just roundly criticized based on who he was and what, what he said uh, in terms of the synopsis. Um, it, it did not deserve that criticism at all. It, it really is a beautifully written, extensive piece, which we should, you know, we should put up on a pedestal and revere. Yeah, it was horrific what they did yeah. to him. Absolutely yeah. ridiculous. What concerns you the most as a physician about this movement, this transgender movement, in terms of where its scientific deception may or may not lead this society and, and all of these kids who are going through these hormone treatments? What, what is to come, do you fear? Well, the, what I fear is that we are going to be having a population that is thousandsfold uh, uh, greater than we currently have. We know now that from adults who've been through this, who as adults made the decisions to do these things to themselves, they are coming out of the woodwork saying, this is awful. It never really did what I wanted it to do. I realize now this was all a sham. They take responsibility for it because they signed consent forms, but they believe they were misled by the people that told them that this would help them in the long run. These individuals are now beginning to come out from out of the shadows, if you will, because where they've been hiding out of fear, fear and also out of dismay and embarrassment that they did this to themselves willingly at the time. And these individuals are showing up and now coming together uh, and, and they're, they're talking to one another and they're giving uh, talks and writing articles and books saying to the kids, don't do this. I was in your shoes. And, and so 
these are the people from the, you know, that we're talking the 60s, 70s, and 80s that are now coming back saying, don't. We're going to have a thousandfold that many kids who are going to come back and say, what, what happened to me? Who did this to me? I wasn't even of the age of consent. I was 13 years old, and all of a sudden, I, my puberty was stopped. I'm sterile. I can't have any, you know, sexual relations because I have no anatomy to do it with. Um, wh- what's, what's to become of me, and who's responsible? Well, the parents for signing the consent, and the hospitals, and the health care providers for doing this, so without any scientific evidence to prove that it was the right thing to do, that it was safe and effective. Effective first, well, safe first, and effective second. Those studies have never been done. So this is all a John Money experiment again, an idea in someone's head, let's do this and see what happens, and 20 years later we'll say, oh, ooh, oops, sorry, Charlie, wasn't the right answer. We're going to have thousands and thousands and thousands of kids who are, as adults, you know, essentially their bodies have been ruined and their health likewise. Oh, my goodness. Well, I want to refer people over to the website. It's acpeds.org, acpeds.org, the American College of Pediatricians, headed up by President Dr. Quentin Van Meter. Such an honor. Thank you so much, Dr. Van Meter. Appreciate your being here. Happy to be of help. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much for being here. Wow. We're going to come back right after this on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, it's very interesting when we're talking about the fraud of transgender medicine, how this ties into the coronavirus issue. Peter Sprigg over at the Family Research Council has a really good piece over at the Family Research Council blog titled Off-Label Use of Drugs are Fine for Gender Transitions, but Not for Coronavirus, Say Liberals. I love when you can point out the hypocrisy of these people because they're total hypocrites. It's kind of like the therapy issue. As long as you're affirming a child's homosexuality, that's great therapy and you can do it all day long. But if you have a confused child who has become confused because that child was sexually abused, perhaps by somebody of the same sex, which has happened to countless number of children who have dealt with this issue, you cannot do anything but affirm homosexuality. You can't possibly help that child deal with the trauma and help them work through those aberrant attractions. That's how leftists think. There's one way and it's not your way. And you don't want to ever tell any child that there's something wrong with an aberrant sexuality in any way, shape or form. So what Peter is talking about, as you know, the FDA has approved this emergency use of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, these anti-malaria drugs to treat COVID-19. The left is up in arms. They had a tweet from CNN the other day, these unproven drugs, you know, they're all up in arms about it. And I said, you know, if Obama were president, these people would be doing cartwheels. Who are we kidding? They would tout Barack Obama as being a genius 
genius for having come up with the idea of using anti-malarial drugs to treat COVID-19. They would have lauded the drugs as gifts straight from heaven. We all know how it goes. And Peter cites a number of headlines. Bloomberg, for example, said Trump pushes an unproven coronavirus drug. This was back when Trump started talking about it in mid-March. Slate downplayed the drug's potential, saying Trump cited a report in a scientific journal that only studied 20 patients and was not a controlled clinical trial. Mother Jones said Trump keeps promoting unproven drugs, etc., etc. It's true, by the way, that off-label use of a drug means it has not been scientifically proven to be safe and effective for that particular condition, but it's not illegal to do it. And in fact, it's fairly common. It's been estimated that one in five prescriptions written in America is for an off-label use. And as Peter says, liberals have been far more enthusiastic about off-label use of some drugs if they support one of their ideological pet projects. So let's talk about this, the off-label use of drugs for gender transitions. This is what Peter says. Take gender transition medical procedures. Preteens who experience gender dysphoria, that is distress regarding their biological sex, are increasingly being treated with a regimen featuring puberty-blocking drugs such as Lupron, followed by cross-sex hormones like testosterone or estrogen, followed by gender reassignment surgery. These interventions are touted with terms like evidence-based and standard of care. So it might surprise some people, including the patients, that all of these are off-label uses of such drugs. Puberty blockers, for example, are intended in children to treat a medical condition called central precocious puberty, in which the child begins to show the biological signs of puberty prematurely at an age far younger than would normally be expected. The drugs stop the physical progression of puberty until they are removed at a more normal age for such development. The effect of their use to stop normal puberty, followed by their withdrawal at an older age or when beginning to take cross-sex hormones, has not been well studied. Sex hormones like estrogen are officially used to treat symptoms of menopause or certain cancers. But an article in the Journal of Sexual Medicine, who knew there was such a thing, reported long-term effects and side effects of cross-sex hormone treatment in transsexual persons are not well known. Gender reassignment surgery, while not subject to the same testing as medications, has also not been proven safe or effective. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services in 2016 found that there is not enough high-quality evidence to determine whether gender reassignment surgery improves health outcomes, in part because patients in the best studies did not demonstrate clinically significant changes after surgery. Well, again, we're going back to what Dr. Paul McHugh did at Johns Hopkins, and that was... These surgeries aren't working. They're not solving the problem. The people who are going through these body mutilating surgeries are not coming out on the other end any better off mentally or any better off in terms of their depression or in terms of some of the symptoms that they were showing prior to the surgery. That's why he stopped the surgeries, the gender reassignment surgeries at Johns Hopkins. And it's why he's such a pariah as far as the left is concerned now, because he's speaking truth. And he's speaking truth with a great medical mind and tons of experience in this area. They don't want to hear it because the ideology trumps the drugs. The ideology trumps the well-being of the patients. The ideology even trumps the doctors. And yet they're the people who talk about being the party of science. Okay. Now, Peter goes on to say, 
If you look closely, advocates of gender transition medical procedures do not even try to deny some of this reality. Fenway Health, which serves the LGBT community in Boston, writes that no medications or other treatments are currently approved by the FDA for the purposes of gender alteration and affirmation. A 2018 article in the journal Transgender Health reiterated that there are no medications or other treatments that are FDA approved for the purpose of gender affirmation. And the AMA's Council on Science and Public Health reported that the certain hormones, GNRH analogs, which are puberty blockers, and antiandrogens are all used off-label for gender reaffirming therapy because their use lacks scientific evidence. They're a little bit crazy, aren't they, when they're trying to push their own ideology, but then they turn around and yell and scream about hydroxychloroquine not being proven when we all know it's because it's Trump. We all know that's why they don't like it. And Peter mentions the off-label use of a drug, any drug may sometimes be justified, but should always be pursued with caution. That there's one big difference between the drugs President Trump has shown enthusiasm for and the drugs that social liberals so eagerly tout. The coronavirus causes very real physical disease, which is killing more and more Americans every day. And expediting the experimental off-label use of malaria drugs may be justified because of the massive scope of the public health problem we face. The off-label use of drugs for gender transition is quite different. Not only is there no comparable public health crisis... There's not even a physical illness that's being treated. Neither puberty nor being biologically male or female is a disease. And liberals should be careful showing self-righteousness about putting our trust in the scientists because their hypocrisy is showing when it comes to the transgender movement. And I'm glad to see Peter making this point. It's a very, very fair point, and it's a very important point. You're using all of these drugs and surgeries to solve a problem that isn't even physical. And you're using children as your as your lab rats. It's disgusting. And I don't know where it's going to end up. But I just feel it's so important for us as Christians to know the truth about all of this. Hey, by the way, I just want to thank each and every one of you who have been helping us in our great campaign with Bible League to get 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians around the world. This is such an important thing for us to continue to do because there are Christians who are new to the faith. They don't have any Bibles in their own language. Here we are. We're sitting at home. We're quarantined. We're able to take any Bible off our shelf that we have and read it and meditate on it and really draw the food of God's word out of the text, they don't have that ability because they don't have Bibles. But your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles and a gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles in the language of new Christians in parts of Asia, Africa, Europe, the Middle East, and Latin America through Bible League. I want to play for you one testimony in Indonesia from a man named Thony. As a person who was born in a Muslim family, I have so many friends and family members actually who belong to the Muslim faith. And for them, uh, the things that interest them is always the relationship, the personal relationship with God. Because it's it's something strange for them. It's something weird that we can have a God who have a personal uh, uh, relationship with us, who want to talk with us, who who loves us. And because for them, a religion is, is a set of rules. If you do this, then you will be blessed. And do this, you will be cursed or you have, will have a, a punishment. They didn't come to faith because of the theological debate or something like that, but more because of love and an encounter with, with God himself. That's right. And this is why it's so important for us to get 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians around the world by the end of this month. If you can help, dial 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. 
word. That's 800-937-9673. Or there is a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. We're just past halfway toward our goal. And there's a Bible for Bible match right now. So you'll be giving double the Bibles that you wanted to give initially. If you can call now, it's 800-YES-WORD. Or there is a Bible League banner to click at my website, JanetMefford.com. We'll be right back. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month. And there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org JMT. This is Janet Mefford. Did you know that persecuted believers are praying to receive their own Bible? Nepo is a pastor in Africa attacked while preaching by extremists, and he's praying for Bibles for former Muslims who are now following Christ. Ada was forced into an arranged marriage to an abusive atheist in Europe, but her godly witness led him to Jesus. Emilio lost everything after his home was burned by witches in Latin America, and he's praying for a Bible to share Christ with them. Will you be the answer to these pleas for God's Word and see many others come to faith? $5 sends one Bible. $35 sends seven Bibles, and a limited-time Bible for Bible match will help us reach our goal of sending God's Word to 1,200 persecuted Christians. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or by clicking the Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. 800-YES-WORD. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, there have been some interesting headlines of late. Another pastor has been arrested for refusing to follow government orders regarding how many people in his church can gather at a time. And a lot of Christians are worried about this. They're saying, is this a big attack on religious freedom? What should we do about all of this? Well, as my next guest has written in the Washington Examiner, the mutual respect and cooperation between church and state can lead to greater calm and help reduce the impact of such pandemics on our communities. Why? because we've been through this before. So we're going to discuss it today with Jeremy Dice, Special Counsel for Litigation and Communications over at First Liberty Institute. Jeremy, great to have you here. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Janet. Yeah, thank you. There really is a lot of tension right now, I would say, between at least some people in the church in state. Some pastors, as I mentioned there, have been arrested for holding church services. What do you make of this discussion that is being had about the line between First Amendment freedoms versus sensible government restrictions in the midst of a pandemic? Look, I, I think everybody, government included, is just trying to do their best right now in a in a remarkably difficult situation of a worldwide pandemic. We, not in our lifetime have we had to deal with this before. 
And so I think it's right for us to be nervous about uh, these precious freedoms of, of religious liberty and the right to peaceably assemble. Uh, we love those freedoms, and, and they're core to our identity as Americans. But at the same time, we're looking at something that we've never had to deal with, at least in our lifetime, that, uh, that requires some adjustments to our daily life. And maybe the time right now is for us to exercise prudence not so much defiance as we try to get a handle on the effects of this virus. Well, right. What's interesting to me, though, is the times in which we're living, because we saw, for example, the New York City mayor, Bill de Blasio, threaten to shut down houses of worship permanently, permanently, not just during the course of the pandemic, but forever, if they didn't follow his directives about not gathering 10 or more people. That's the kind of stuff that I think can fuel Christians into believing the state has it in for us, then they don't want to trust anything the state says. To what extent do you think that's been a problem, just because of how we've seen government intrusion into the church and hostility toward religious freedom? It's making people more wary than they might have been otherwise. Look, I, I think it's unfortunate that uh, that Mayor de Blasio said those words. I, I want to kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. New York City's under a lot of weight right now. It's the, the epicenter of this virus, not just in America, but probably in the world right now. And so I'm sure the weight of that is weighing heavily on Mayor de Blasio. But nonetheless, that kind of careless conversation helps nobody. The reality is that Mayor de Blasio needs the churches and synagogues and religious institutions of New York City to provide the calm and comfort and peace that the government can't. And at the same time, these houses of worship need the government and its public health apparatus to stem the effects of this virus. And so it's time for both of them to work together. But that kind of language, that kind of loose, careless language helps nobody. And I'll tell you this, if he makes good on that threat to permanently close any house of worship, you can bet that First Liberty Institute will have a couple words to say about that. Oh, I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. You also do something that I think is really helpful in your piece, Jeremy, and that is you go back to the time of the Spanish flu pandemic. Everybody's been talking about that of late because that was the last time we really had a widespread pandemic here in the United States. But talk a little bit about how the Christians of that day, the religious leaders, dealt with the state on this issue of quarantines and some of the other issues that have come up in our own time. Yeah, I think they were just as nervous and scared as all of us are today. And they had uh, they had public health officials, for instance, in Washington D.C. that were that were asking them to stop holding their meetings, and they didn't have the benefit of Zoom or Facebook Live or anything like that back then. And so they were uh, understandably nervous and upset. Is this an intrusion upon our religious freedom? And they got together as a group of pastors within that city. And they decided to discuss this very closely, and they emerged from that meeting with an actual written, recorded vote that said that we do cheerfully comply with the goals of the health department here because they they cared for their fellow man. They knew that love of neighbor demanded that they uh, separate for a short period of time in order to stem the effects of that virus. Well, that's the same thing we're being asked of here. And I'll just go ahead and add here, as our guidance says at FirstLiberty.org, that temporary bans on large gatherings that's going to be permissible in the face of a worldwide pandemic like this. But the key there is that it's temporary. And I think every state official, every government official is working really hard to make sure that that is the case. There are some outliers. I don't want to uh, uh, misspeak. There are some outliers. But I think when they have been confronted, as we've confronted them in the last week, 
They've been glad to back down off of that and make sure that they're not intruding too much upon religious liberty. And I'm glad to see that. Well, right. And here's a distinction that I see as well. It would be one thing if the government were saying we're having a pandemic, all the churches closed down. Everybody else can stay open, but you churches need to close down. That would be deliberate targeting of the churches. But here's what's interesting. People have noted that in certain states, for example, liquor stores can stay open as supposed essential services, essential businesses. Abortion clinics can stay open in certain locations. So why is it the church can't meet? How do you deal with those kinds of issues where in some states there are some weird things going on and certain people are allowed to keep their businesses open that a lot of others would say that's not really essential? Yeah, look, uh, the state of Texas, for instance, is issuing an order that says that church services are, or church uh, church personnel, rather, are essential services yes. for this exact purpose, to make sure that they can actually produce these these uh, these live events or record their, their services in advance. Look, it just how are we dealing with them? When we know about them, we're reminding the elected officials where the boundaries of the First Amendment lie. And thankfully, they're, they're backing off of those restrictions and easing them to make sure that they can respect religious liberty while also caring for this, this worldwide pandemic. I'm glad to see that. Look, we, we've sent letters to Gainesville, Florida. We sent them to Frisco, Texas, McKinney, Texas, the state of Illinois. And I'm sure there are many other places. I'm actually growing concerned. I think in the state of Georgia, for instance, the health department there, the state health department, has said that drive-in church, you know, when you drive to the parking lot, park there and listen to an FM transmitter of the pastor up front preaching to you, they're questioning those there. Well, look, <laughs> that doesn't seem to make much sense when you can drive through McDonald's and pick up a Big Mac. Right. So I don't think that regulation is going to be able to stand either. So as we know about them, and as we're able to remind our elected officials that they, they may have encroached a little bit too far and, and not enforced these fairly, it's good for us to remind them where those boundaries are and how to get back in line with the First Amendment. Yeah. Now, what about the issue, for example, when you go into a Walmart right now or maybe into a Costco? Those are considered to be essential businesses, and they are, clearly, because you have things you need to get, food and milk and all the rest of it. But there are Christians who have said, you go into Walmart and there are lots of people and we're all walking around within a few feet of each other. Why is it okay here, but Christianity and going to church is not considered as essential to the soul as food is considered essential to the body. How do you answer that as as an attorney who understands all the issues regarding Christian principles as well? I don't know that I can give you a really satisfying answer other than to say that I think it's time for us to trust our public health officials to say when they say that uh, part of the way that we combat this worldwide pandemic is to make sure that we we exercise prudence. Maybe we have to go to the grocery store and get food, and if you can find it, toilet paper <laughs> and things like that. But uh, maybe it's okay for us to meet together as as families individually or in groups of 10 or less and, and stream our services online. And, and for that matter, let's just pause and be very grateful right now that you and I live in an age when we can actually do that. Yes. We, we can actually witness our services through our TVs or computers or iPads or whatever, Thank God that we have that kind of technology right now, that we can maintain that sense of community through this, this period. Look, if any of these convert over into some sort of permanent ban, that's never going to fly. And I'm encouraged by the fact that most Americans realize, hey, this is not right. We ought not to be limited like this. We like our religious freedom. And so I'm excited to get on the other side of this virus, because I think we're going to see a newfound commitment to religious liberty, because we've 
we've had to set it aside, at least a little bit of it, for just a little while. Yeah. And we're going to be renewed in our commitment, I think, on the other side of this virus to that very freedom that we love so much. That's a good point. What about working together, church and state, through the duration of the shutdown, the duration of the quarantine? Because I've seen organizations like Samaritan's Purse, for example, setting up a pop-up hospital in New York City to help coronavirus patients. That's a wonderful witness when you see something like that. So the, the state also needs the church and the charitable service services of the church during this time. It absolutely does. And I, I don't know if you've seen the, the reports out recently that, uh, that the hospitals up there are concerned about uh, Samaritan's Purse even doing that. Yes. Like, I mean, Franklin Graham's commitment and all that. And that, yeah. that is just terribly unfortunate that especially the hospital with the name of Mount Sinai would be upset that a religious organization is willing to come in and, and help out and things like this. Look, throughout millennia, the, the Christian church in particular has been at the front lines of fighting pandemics and plagues and, and the like providing that care and comfort and concern for for those who are sick and dying and themselves becoming infected and, and, and ultimately perhaps even succumbing to those things. This is part of what it means to serve Christ for many of these people. And so to criticize them openly like that, I think is a low blow and a cheap shot yeah. when they're seriously trying to assist in, in an area where they don't really have to do that. I'm grateful that Samaritan's Purse is willing to do that, and I hope that the cities there that they're they're helping out We'll welcome them with open arms as their hospitals continue to be, you know, overrun. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. Jeremy Dice from First Liberty Institute. Check them out at firstliberty.org. Jeremy, stay well. Thank you so much for being with us again, and God bless. Thanks, you too. All right, you take care. Thank you for joining us on Janet Mefford today. Always a pleasure to be with you. God bless you too. We'll see you next time. This hour of Janet Mefford Today has been brought to you by Bible League. Help us help Bible League send the hope of God's Word to 1,200 persecuted believers. $35 sends seven Bibles, and today your gift will be doubled with a limited time match. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD.